Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show. I am your host, John Good. Today is Saturday. This is going to be your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of June 3rd, 2022 through June 9th, 2022. If you're uh, joining us on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe if you enjoy the video and you want to see more content. Remember, I make more content than just the threat intel stuff on this channel. So cybersecurity training, uh, career advice, all kinds of different stuff, interviewing professionals, and stuff to really just give you a one-stop shop for everything you need for cybersecurity. If you're listening to us on the podcast on a podcasting platform, make sure to leave us a review and subscribe as well, so you get notified when future episodes come out. And with uh, with no more delay, let's go ahead and get into it. So the first article was Rogue Hacker One employee steals bug reports to sell on the side. A Hacker One employee stole vulnerable vulnerability reports submitted through the bug bounty platform and disclosed them to affected customers claim financial rewards. The rogue worker had contacted about half a dozen HackerOne customers and collected bounties and a handful of disclosures, the company said. HackerOne is a platform for coordinating vulnerability disclosures and inter, uh, so, okay, so basically, if you're not familiar with what HackerOne is, it's basically this bug bounty platform where companies can use it to uh, host their, their bug bounty platforms so, or programs. So if a company wants to bring in one of the uh, researchers that's out there for security and they want to uh, pay them if they can find bugs on different applications or different websites, things like that. That's basically what HackerOne is. And uh, so catching the employee, this is what happened basically. On June 20, uh, 20, uh, 22nd, uh, HackerOne responded to a customer request to investigate a suspicious vulnerability disclosure through an off-platform communication channel from someone using the handle RZLR. The customer had noticed that the same security issue had previously been submitted through HackerOne. Bug collisions where multiple researchers find and report the same security issue are frequent. In this case, the genuine report and the one from the threat actor shared uh, obvious similarities that prompted a closer look. HackerOne's investigations determined that one of its employees had access to the uh, platform for over two months since they joined the company on April, 20, uh, April 4th until June 23rd and contacted seven companies to report vulnerabilities already disclosed through its systems. So, you know, I mean, with this, this is one of those cases where you have a rogue employee who is able to kind of manipulate the system and abuse the system. And I think on this, you know, it's unfortunate, right? Because really this kind of, um, I think this kind of take, takes advantage of HackerOne instead of the, you know, kind of the client systems or client, the clients, right? Client companies. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about employees, you have to think about doing things like background checks and really just vetting your employees. And then, you know, once they get into the company, you have to do things like lease privilege and have kind of checks and balances and things like that that are in place. I think that 
you know, on this, it might have been difficult to identify without seeing this stuff on other platforms, right? Because likely with any insider threat, a lot of times they have legitimate access. And so if they are able to, you know, in their mind kind of photograph information, then that, that's a hard thing to, to catch, right? But, you know, definitely just an interesting article in general because we don't typically hear about these bug bounty platforms uh, having people or, you know, insiders that, that just go rogue, right? Typically they're in it for the good. So I just thought this was really, um, you know, a really interesting article. Uh, next article, patchable and preventable security issues lead causes of Q1 attacks. So in this article, it says 82% of attacks on organizations in Q1 2022 were caused by the external exposure of, a known, of known vulnerabilities in the victim's external facing perimeter or attack service. surface. Those unpatched bugs overshadowed breach-related financial losses tied to human error, which accounted for 18%. The report did not let employee security hygiene or a lack thereof off the hook. Tetra revealed that a lack of multi-factor authentication, MFA, mechanisms adopted by firms and compromised credentials are still major factors in attacks against organizations. So 82%. Uh, caused by known vulnerabilities, you know, that's huge, right? Patching is hard, especially if you have a lot of systems and a lot of systems with different needs. And, you know, it takes time too, right? So critical patches typically roll out a lot quicker than just standard patches or less critical patches. And, you know, sometimes they don't get done, right? Or they don't get done on time because there's a lot of constraints, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of needs for limited resources. And, um, you know, you, you have to prioritize patching, obviously, and it has to be tested. You don't want to just blast out patches and take down systems because, you know, you didn't test it correctly. But 82% is a ton, right? I think that there's significant opportunity in improving your patching uh, process. And that just kind of shows it, right? Like a lot of these exploits and these attacks and these breaches are going to be related to missing patches, right? They're just taking advantage of those unpatched systems. But then also think about this, you know, do you have a grasp on what kind of software is on your network or on your systems? A lot of times that's another issue. You don't always know what applications are on there. If users have administrative privileges and they can just install, you know, software whenever they want, then that leads to issues because then you can't make sure everything is patched. And, you know, so that, that's a really, uh, really another issue that is tied to this is a good handle on your software. And there are automated systems like SCCM and some other stuff where you can do software inventories and, you know, see what's on there. But, you know, especially in less mature organizations, um, in less mature organizations, it just, you know, it's something that needs to be worked on. So I would, I would look at uh, CIS, the top, I think it's, it's now a top 18 controls, but that kind of gives you an idea of different things, especially as you mature, you know, what you should be focusing on. And uh, we had a question in the chat saying, is this a video or a live stream? This is a live stream, believe it or not. So yeah, 
this is a live stream. So, um, but yeah, so we have to get better at patching and uh, then also multi-factor authentication. That's just another thing that we've seen a lot because, you know, companies just are trying to make it easy on people to log into systems. And obviously when it's easier, it's easier for everybody, right? It's easier for attackers. It's easier for users. It's easier for everybody. Uh, so multi-factor authentication is definitely something that you have to work towards. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of talk with getting away from passwords. And I think eventually we will find some way to get there. But, um, you know, until that point, you have to secure your authentication measures and, you know, make sure that people can't authenticate without multi-factor multi authentication. So, uh, Next article, Microsoft Raspberry uh, Robin Worm already infected hundreds of networks. So Raspberry Robin is a Windows worm discovered by cybersecurity researchers from Red Canary. The malware propagates through removable USB devices. So malware through USB devices is not new. You know, this has happened in a lot of cases. And um, one of the things that you can do, right, and that kind of can help alleviate some of the concerns on USB devices is, for one, not allowing them to come in, right, and not allowing them to plug in and all that kind of stuff, using thin clients, you know, all, all that good stuff. But there are settings where you can disable uh, things like auto run, right? So like when I plug in a USB drive on my computer, there are settings where you can disable that from automatically executing. And that's a good step, right? Like that's, that's a good thing to have in place. But, you know, again, you generally, right? A lot of times people don't really have a legitimate need to have a USB uh, drive or device in a lot of companies, right? Because a lot of the communication is internal. There's not a lot of transferring it to some other other network or something like that that's legitimate. And, you know, so I, I think you just need to be a little bit more strict with how you, you know, allow things. But anyways, malicious code uses Windows installer to reach out to QNAP associated domains and download a malicious DLL. The malware uses Tor exit nodes as a backup C2 infrastructure. And then it has a quote. It says, Raspberry Robin is typically introduced via infected uh, drives, often USB devices. Raspberry Robin, uh, Raspberry Robin worm uh, uh, often appears as a shortcut link file masquerading as a legitimate folder on the infected USB uh, device, continues the analysis. Soon after the Raspberry Robin infected drive is connected to the system, the user assist registry entry is updated and records ex uh, records execution of a ROT13 cipher, uh, ciphered value referencing a link file when deprecated. And then they, uh, they give an example as well. So it uses basically like a link, a link file, right? Uh, the malware uses command.exe to read and execute a file stored on the infected external drive, leverages MSI exec.exec for external commu network communications to a rogue domain used as a C2 to download and install a DLL library file. So again, you know, limiting user privileges, you, limiting what they can install. Hopefully they can't install anything. And, um, you know, the closer you get to that separation of, uh, of privileges and the better handle on what privileges that users have and get them away from all having domain admin or rather uh, local administrator, especially, you know, the, the closer you get to being more secure, right? 
Uh, then MSI exec .exec launches a legitimate Windows utility, uh, fodhelper.exe, which in turn then runs run dll32.exe to execute a malicious command. Experts pointed out the processes launched by fodhelper.exe run with elevated administrative privileges without requiring a user account control prompt. So user account control is that thing where it pops up, uh, or UAC, it pops up and says, um, like it, it's, uh, I forget the exact verbiage that it says, but it's like, do you, uh, do you want to run this, uh, you know, whatever. Like it's that additional prompt that comes up, that started uh, coming up. I think it was in, I want to say Windows Vista, maybe Windows 7. Definitely in, window, uh, definitely in Windows 7, but um, I can't remember if it was in Vista or not. I don't think it was in Windows XP. Pretty sure that was a Vista enhancement. <laughs> if, you, if you ever had Windows Vista, you know what I'm talking about because most people weren't a fan of Vista, and it wasn't around for very long because it had a lot of issues. But um, yeah, so being able to bypass that is not good, right? That's not good for us because that is put into place so that uh, there's an additional you know, mechanism uh, control to prevent some of this extra stuff. So it's an extra thing that has to be bypassed. So, um, and then, so also too, just another point that I wanna make is that uh, if, you, um, if you're interested in seeing the actual articles for this, definitely check out the description. I do have a link there. Um, I have the show notes on my website, so you can go check them out there. And uh, I have all the article links uh, on there as well. So you can you know, go back and watch, uh, look at these articles. So yeah, we have a comment in the chat. Vista was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Vista, uh, Vista is one of those things. Microsoft Vista is one of those things where um, you, <laughs> you could just, you know, you could spend a lot of time talking about it if you, if you experienced it, right? Like it was, there was a, it was a very different shift for Microsoft. And uh, it, it irritated a lot of people. You know, it caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. And, um, you know, it just, <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, it, sometimes Microsoft, very infrequently, they do things that are like, what? And uh, Vista was one of those things where, you know, it just yeah, ruffled a lot of feathers. Yeah, Vista's like 8.1. That that's what I was thinking, right? It's like there was Vista, which quickly turned into Windows 7. And then there was Windows 8, which quickly turned into Windows 8.1. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> so good times, good times. And uh, also too, if you're listening to this on the podcast, I did put the li uh, link to my, um, to my website as well in the description. So you can check out the articles there too. So uh, next article. Hacker claims to have personal data of 1, billions Chinese, uh, 1 billion Chinese citizens. Posting on the hacker forum Breach Forms last week, an online user posting under the name China Dan said they obtained the information from a leaked Shanghai National Police database. database. Uh, they wrote the that the databases contain information on 1 billion Chinese national residents and several billion case records including name, address, birthplace, national ID number, mobile number, and all the crime case details. China Dan used the hacker form to offer more than 23 terabytes of data from the alleged breach 
for the price of 10 bitcoins, so the equivalent of around $200,000. If proven true, experts believe that this would be one of the biggest data breaches ever recorded. So, you know, for a police department or, or some like very sensitive area of record storage to be, you know, so uh, kind of low security, that's, you know, that's an issue, right? Because there's a lot of sensitive information in there. There was a follow-up article here too. It says China police database was left open for over a year, enabling the leak. So these are kind of tied. but. It says, what is likely one of the largest heists of personal data and the largest known cybersecurity breach in China? Uh, it occurred because a common vulnerability that left the data open for the taking on the internet, says cybersecurity experts who discovered the security flaw earlier this year. Shanghai police records containing the name, government ID numbers, phone numbers, incident reports, nearly 1 billion Chinese citizens stored securely, according to the cybersecurity experts, but a dashboard for managing the accessing uh, and accessing the data was set up on a public web address and left open without a password. Okay, I'm going to let, let's let that sink in for a second here, right? Which allowed anyone with relatively basic technical knowledge to waltz on in and copy or steal the trove of information they said. Okay, so the back end supposedly was fairly secure. You just left the front door open. You know, it's, it's fine, right? A public web address with a dashboard, no password. All right, so anybody can log in and I'm, nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. That's not something that people would do. That's not something people would do. People are naturally good and they're not going to try to log into anything, right? Eh, okay, sure. <laughs> And I mean, it, it's, you know, like, I, I don't know what to say, right? Like you, you leave, you leave a dashboard that can just access everything open. Good job. That's, you know, that is really bad, right? Obviously. And, um, it's just amazing how, you know, you can do something like that and not ever think about it, right? Because obviously they were logging in the same dashboard and they're just like, do, 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 do. I'm going to look at the records. Okay, okay, yep, cool. And like, this is crazy, right? So I'm not surprised, you know. It's like, I mean, obviously this is in China. So there's, um, you know, there there's some like censorship and some other things going on in there where, um, you know, maybe like search and things like that, they work a little bit different, like as far, as far as how it operates on the back end. But the whole idea is like a search engine, you know, in general, it operates the same way. So I wonder if like on Google, so that you have these uh, Google dorks, they're called, right? They're basically keyword, um, they're kind of like um, operators or like options and things like that, that you can do within your search to refine it and make it more direct and more specific. So I wonder if this dashboard, if you could find that through like um, Google or, you know, a Google uh, comparable search engine, right? Uh, in, within China, right? 
um, or I guess external to China, right? Um, it doesn't, uh, this doesn't say necessarily this China Dan, if this person was inside of China or outside, because obviously, um, you know, either way, it doesn't really matter. Right. But, um, you know, that, that's just, <laughs> that's so bad. This is so bad. So I, you know, if you have, if you have a dashboard that's public, publicly accessible and it's got sensitive information on it, um, you know, you might, maybe this job isn't necessarily what you're cut out for, right? That's a pretty glaring hole. So, uh, next article, Microsoft Azure, uh, now has confidential VMs with ephemeral, uh, storage with this new public preview feature, uh, Azure customers can, uh, can create ephemeral OS disks only on the local VM storage or on VM cache or VM temp disk, thus ensuring that the data remains 100% confidential since it will never be sent to remote Azure sto storage. Ephemeral OS disks work well for stateless workloads where applications or, uh, are tolerant of individual VM failures, but are more affected by VM deployment type or re-imaging of individual VM instances, Microsoft explains. With ephemeral OS disk, you get lower read-write latency to the OS disk and faster VM re-image. This allows customers to benefit from the Azure uh, hardware-based trusted execution environments, TEEs, to protect their data while being processed from outside access. Data in TEEs cannot be accessed or tampered with by code outside of the TEE environment because they are designed to enforce the execution of only authorized code. So... You know, I mean, typically with a lot of these cloud vendors, we're seeing them all the time. They come out with new improvements on their their um, their products and their services, and I think this is just another another step towards that. I mean, this sounds pretty interesting, right? Because especially in the cloud, you know, it's really about um, data ownership, right? Because you really um, you really want to make sure that as a customer that you do own your data and that, um, you know, you know exactly where it's being stored, right? So if you want it to just be stored on that system, you should have that option. You shouldn't have an option where it's like, it's, um, it, it's accessible on that system, but it's really stored somewhere else, or maybe it's replicated somewhere else or backed up somewhere else or something like that. And you don't really have control of that. Right. Cause then you get into things like, well, you know, where, where, uh, where's the data center or whatever, where this backup is stored, because maybe my, my VM instance is stored, you know, within my country. And then that backup is stored in some other country. And, you know, there are all kinds of issues and stuff with cloud that you have to be concerned about, depending on the type of data and stuff that you deal with and the, the laws and regulations that you have to abide by. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of things that you have to consider. And, uh, it, it's not really, you know, it, it's a long discussion, so we're not going to really dive into it right now, but, um, just keep that in mind. You know, if you're dealing with cloud, if you're implementing things into the cloud, that uh, you have to be aware of a lot of this stuff. So. Yeah, we had a comment in the chat. It says uh, there, there are many MongoDB open to public by mistake. 
yeah, I mean, we even see that, and this is kind of going back to the previous article, but we even see, um, you know, uh, like uh, public repos and stuff like that for like GitHub and all kinds of stuff where there are secrets, which are basically, you know, kind of like pa uh, access tokens or passwords. We see stuff like that where they're just like leaked or like they're stored within the repo. And it's just like, what are you doing? This is just, this doesn't make sense. You are just, you know, bad. That's just bad. So bad. So. Let's see here. All right. Next article. Can't. Uh, Canada's National Police Force admits use of spyware to hack phones. Eey. It's, rem it's a remarkable, remarkable disclosure. Canada's National Police Force has described for the first time how it uses spyware to infiltrate mobile devices and collect data, including by remotely turning on the camera and microphone of a suspect's phone or laptop. The Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police says it only uses such tools in the most serious cases when less intrusive techniques are unsuccessful. But until now, the force has not been open about its ability to employ malware to hack phones or other devices, despite using the tools for several years. Between 2018 and 2020, the RCMP said it deployed the technology in, invest in 10 investigations. This kind of capability is uh, that they have done everything possible to keep. Uh, this is a kind of capability that they have done everything possible to keep incredibly quiet. Say Christopher Parsons, senior researcher, a senior research associate at the University of Toronto Citizen Lab. Yeah, I mean, you know, spyware in general is not new. We we hear a lot about it that a lot of countries have this capability, and um, you know, you'll even hear about. If you go into a country and you're crossing, um, you know, you're going through customs that potentially these uh, different uh, countries can scan your phone and they might ask for the password or for you to unlock your device to see what you're, you know, you're bringing in. And, um, you know, I mean, this isn't really necessarily new. And so I think that the fact that they have it, I would say is almost implied that a country like Canada has it because, you know, a lot of different countries have been implicated in these kind of things with spyware tools and stuff like that and uh, surveillance monitoring and, you know, being able to turn on cameras without you knowing about it and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But I guess the fact that it's, um, you know, kind of, kind of coming to light with Canada, I think that they've, you know, at least publicly, right? They've kind of flown under the radar as far as um, being known that they have it, but I don't think that's really that big of a shock, frankly. So I don't know. What What do you guys think? Yeah, Israel. I mean, there's the whole um, what is it? Uh, Pegasus spyware software. Um, you know, I mean, there there's a lot of instances of it uh, these days. So it, you know, yeah. <laughs> so but you know be careful what you have on your devices you know that that's the biggest thing that i would say because you know um yeah i mean if you don't want people to see something then don't put it on your device because that that technology it does exist and um you know yeah i mean yeah so um 
let's see here. So this is a really interesting article. A uh, hack allows drone takeover via Express LRS protocol. A radio control system for drones is vulnerable to remote takeover thanks to a weakness in the mechanism that binds transmitter and receiver. Express LRS is an open source long range radio link for RC uh, applications such as pers first person view FPV drones. Designed to be the best FPV racing link, wrote its authors on GitHub. According to the report, the hack utilizes a highly optimized over-the-air packet structure, giving simultaneous range and latency advantages. The vulnerability in the protocol is tied to the fact that some of the information sent over the, uh, over via over-the-air packets is link data that a third party can use to hijack the uh, connection between drone operator and drone. Anybody with the ability to monitor traffic between the express LRS transmitter and receiver can hijack the communication, which could result in full control of the target craft. An aircraft already in the air would likely experience control issues causing a crash. So the reason why this is interesting is we see a lot of drones, you know, starting to be used for not just, you know, obviously we have like government and military kind of drones that uh, were in the news and talked about a lot. But, um, you know, we're starting to see them used for commercial purposes, for personal purposes. And if it's very trivial to, you know, hijack these signals and kind of take over, right, or even just take over the signal and cause a crash, like it says, um, you know, any of those are kind of an issue, right? Because for one, if you can just take over the signal and do something and whatever, and then the other person regains the control, and then it's somehow tracked back to that person, you know, that's an issue. If I could just cause a drone to crash into a building or something, or cause an accident, crash into cars, whatever, right? All of those are issues. And, you know, I think as drones continue to be used and used in more applications, um, you know, something like this is, there just has to be, you know, more focus on this, more regulation. Um, I haven't personally heard a ton of regulation around, you know, drones and the technology that's necessarily in them, right? There's restrictions with where you can fly them and the things that you can do with them like that. But, you know, I think especially as drones become more ubiquitous, kind of they're everywhere and used for a lot of things, you know, there just, there just has to be more restriction, more um, focus on them because that is one thing that could cause a lot of issues, right? It's not something that's just staying stationary. It's something that's flying. It could be, you know, I, I don't know what the range is on some of these uh, personal kind of drones, right? But maybe like a mile or, you know, something, right? A very long distance and very high altitude. That's like if you threw uh, a penny or something off of like a very tall building, right? Like just throwing a penny from a foot away is not that big of a deal, right? If you toss a penny off a, a 10 story building, well, that's a serious issue, right? And it's the same kind of thing, right? This drone is not stationary. It's going to go, you know, a couple hundred feet in the air, maybe more. I don't know. But, um, you know, it, there's just a lot more potential harm that this could cause. So I, I'd like to see kind of where this is going to go uh, as some of these vulnerabilities and things like that are, you know, discovered. So. All right. Uh, how a fake a job offer took down 
the world's most popular crypto game. So earlier this year, if you haven't heard about Axie Infinity, uh, there was a developer, Sky Mavis, uh, approached by people uh, perpetrating to represent the fake, a fake company and encouraged to apply to jobs, according to people familiar with the matter. One source added that approaches were made through professional networking sites like LinkedIn. So be careful on LinkedIn. And after one source described multiple rounds of interviews, so this person actually went through interviews. Whoa, that's taking it to another level, right? Uh, Sky Mavis engineer was offered a job with extremely generous compensation package. Sweet, awesome, right? Fake offer was delivered in the form of a PDF. Uh-oh, I think we're seeing where this is going. When the engineer downloaded it, it allowed spyware to infiltrate uh, Ronin systems. From there, hackers were able to attack and take over four out of the nine validators on the Ronin network, leaving them just one validator short of total control. So, you know, this is an issue. Employees do this. They apply to jobs. They will look at, you know, documents, especially like this is a PDF document for a new offer, right? And uh, they looked at it on the corporate network and they were compromised, right? So, I mean, this kind of just goes to basics, you know, don't let people access their personal email on your corporate systems. That's a bad idea in general. But uh, the, the fact that they could just download this PDF and open it, you know, that's another issue. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to train your employees, you know, really uh, acceptable use policies, things like that come into play here and making sure that, you know, that they're not doing things they shouldn't be doing, right? Um, especially in this kind of situ uh, situation because they had four of the nine validators. They just needed one more and they could have controlled everything. That's, that's pretty intense, right? So separation of duties is another thing, least privilege. Like all of these things are common that should be implemented in your network, might not be implemented in your network. And uh, you should take, you know, should, you should focus a little bit more on doing at least the basics, right? So, yeah. All right. <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox, right? Uh, okay. So, UK signs deal to share police biometric uh, database US border, border data. According to a member of the European, Europe, European Parliament's Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice, and Home Affairs, the body met informally with representatives of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security this week to discuss the plans. They come under the auspices ausp uh, ausp of the uh, Enhanced Border Security Partnership, EBSP, which is designed to increase the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's ability to detect threats through biometric information sharing. Israel signed up to the arrangement in March. Uh, LIBE committee member and pirate, pirate party MEP Patrick uh, Breyer said that, the, said that during the meeting last week, the committee discovered that the U, UK and three U, EU member states, through their identities were not, though their identities were not revealed, had already signed up to reintroduce U.S. visa requirements, which grant access to police biometric databases. So if you're not familiar with it, there is a lot of data sharing between company, or countries, right? It's been in the news. It's not. Um, it's not, you know, confidential information or anything like that. It is out there. It's in the news. It's known. And uh, especially when you're, you know, crossing borders and things like that, you know, allied countries, uh, countries that are allies, 
they share information between each other, right? So whether that is, you know, like NATO countries or, you know, something I, you know, I don't know the extent of it, right? Because, um, but, you know, it's a thing. And I mean, this is just, you know, another, another article about that. And especially, you know, if you're trying to get visas or, you know, inner countries or anything like that, I mean, they're, you know, that's why you give them your passport. They make sure everything is, you know, on the, on the up and up. And yeah. So, uh, UK signs its first data sharing deal. So again, this is same kind of thing with South Korea though, in this. So it says six years on the referendum where the UK voted to leave the EU and in the midst of apparent government meltdown, the country is announcing its first international data sharing deal. It's inked with uh, South Korea, which will allow organization in the UK to transfer data to the Republic of Korea and vice versa without restrictions. Data transfers cover any and all digital services that might provide uh, be provisioned in one, one country, but used or run in another. It covers data services like GPS and smart devices, online banking, research, internet services, and more. South Korea is home to the world's uh, biggest, biggest tech and specifically mobile tech companies, Samsung and LG, and already represents some 1.3, uh, 1.6 billion in international trade uh, the UK said. So again, they're just entering larger uh, information sharing agreements and how that will be used. I mean, we don't know yet. We might never know, but you know, things like GPS services, you know, one can only imagine, right? I mean, uh, frankly, if you're a bad person, it's going to get harder for you for sure, because the more effective that countries like this can share data between each other and um, you know, just interact effectively, the, the d- more difficult it's going to be for you to be in a, you know, really comfortable situation in some of these countries, right? So sorry, but it's just how it is, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, kudos on them. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some, some issues that pop up as far as data sharing, but, um, you know, th- this is not the first thing that we're going to see about data sharing and stuff like that. And, you know, it's not the first, it's not the last. And so it's just, um, I think it's the first time that we've really seen the UK, at least recently, being talked about in data sharing, right? So pretty interesting. So, yeah, somebody says it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it's going to happen, right? If you've never gone to another country, you know, you have to go through customs. You have to be kind of like approved to enter a country. Uh, it doesn't matter what country, right? There's always some kind of, well, I guess, I guess maybe that's not true. Maybe there's countries where there, there is no like border patrol, right? But um, pretty much every, you know, established country is going to have some kind of border checkpoint or border patrol that is going to, you know, they're going to go through, you're going to go through customs. They're going to ask why you're going and all that kind of stuff. They're going to make sure you're not a, you know, a felon or something. And uh, there's actually a show on that. Um, uh, I don't know the show name. I can't remember, but um, it's a show, at least here in the U S that we watch. There's a U.S. one and a Canadian one here where uh, it's like, that is the show. It's focused on the border, uh, the border entry points. And people that are coming in and they're like, oh, well, you know, 
your your story seems fishy. Let's go through all your stuff. And then, oh, you have like all these drugs, right? <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So, all right. Well, um, so that is the last uh, last article for today. Um, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to leave a like on this video and subscribe so you don't miss future content. Hit that bell icon. That will notify you as well. And then uh, also, this is available on podcasting platforms. So if you're watching on there, make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. Uh, there is also a link on the podcast as well as on the video description on YouTube to my website. So if you want to actually check out the articles, feel free to do so for that as well. And uh, with, with that, that's going to be the end of this stream. I want to thank you for joining me for the uh, Threat Intel Briefing for June 3rd, 2022 through June 9th, 2022. And until next time, I'll see you later.